0: I have to admit that my favorite scene in The Battleship Potemkin is probably everybody's favorite scene.
1: I know it's my favorite scene. I'm Todd Melby, and this is The Drunk Projectionist. On this episode, we open our ears to the sounds of silent films with a documentary about musicians who composed new scores to movies from a century ago. These same musicians are smitten with the works of Sergei Eisenstein, Buster Keaton, early Alfred Hitchcock, and Douglas Fairbanks. Those same musicians sometimes create new scores for talkies like Night of the Living Dead.
2: We do things out of the ordinary.
1: They're coming to get you,
3: Barbara.
4: Stop it, you're ignorant.
3: We've we've done that before, we purposefully tried to, you know, crank it up a notch, or make it a, a notch more sinister. That's later in the episode, but first, we begin with one
1: man's obsession with the Odessa steps. When Jared Manisek visited Odessa, by the way, this was a long time ago, before the war, he tried to recreate the movie's most memorable scene, but with sound. Yep, Manisek wanted to record the sound of a baby carriage tumbling downward. The locals weren't exactly cooperative. Stay tuned. This is The Drunk Projectionist.
0: I have to admit that my favorite scene in the Battleship Potemkin is probably everybody's favorite scene. And even if you haven't watched the movie, you may well know the one I'm talking about. It's a baby carriage rolling down a broad staircase that leads from the city of Odessa to the harbor below. The Tsar has sent his troops to put down a popular uprising, and they end up opening fire on the people gathered on the top of the steps. A mother falls against her baby carriage, and it starts to roll down the stairs. The scene's been copied countless times. It was in The Untouchables, Woody Allen's made fun of it. It's pretty much become a cliché. But the powerful thing about the original is that it's absolutely silent. It's pure film. There's running, shooting, falling, screaming, fear, all those things. But you hear nothing. Not even the squeak of wheels or the boing of baby carriage springs. It's a defining moment for film, and for Odessa. More to the point, it's a defining moment for a radio producer who tends to think of things in terms of the sounds they make. Just what are those squeaks and bumps that are the sounds of the Potemkin steps? Well, I should probably fess up right now. I still don't know. The obvious solution was to borrow a baby carriage from some young, unsuspecting Odessan parents and then just give it the old heave-ho. This did not, however, go exactly according to plan.
5: <laughs>
0: After a couple of tries, I pretty much gave up on that approach. I wasn't going anywhere, and I suspect that's because all the parents I talked with had babies in their baby carriages. But I was still feeling that need for instant gratification, so I reached for the closest thing at hand, Spare Change. This was an utter failure, and helped convince me that although the Potemkin Steps are a majestic symbol for a city with relatively few major landmarks, they make a second-rate tourist attraction. Yeah, they're big and they're broad and you get a good view, but they're also rutted and uneven, Fact is, they worked better in the movie. At the top of the steps is a broad promenade, and if it weren't for the cheesy souvenir stands and the blaring East European Turbo Pop coming from the cafes, you might think you were back in the same down-at-the-heels port town of 80 years ago. There's even local hucksters trying to take your picture with some flea-bitten exotic animal on a leash. Of course, these days, the hucksters speak English. photo, photo
6: my Do have photo? Do have photo? Do have photo?
0: Well, sort
6: business, 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 business. Money, 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 business.
0: A ping-pong ball from a local sports store was my failsafe, And it worked, rolling and bouncing most of the way down the stairs. But after playing with that a couple of times, I kind of felt like I was cheating. I mean, it's a ball. It's designed to do that. As a foreigner, it's easy to make certain assumptions that turn out to be totally unfounded like how cheap everything must be in a country where the beer costs less than a dollar and comes served with a snack of dried fish. Disappointed by my inauthentic ping-pong ball dalliances, I figured I would just buy a baby carriage. Well, Odessa may be a beautiful old city on the sea replete with shady squares and baroque architecture, but it's no paradise, especially if you're in the market for a baby carriage. I swung by a store with the promising name of Baby's World in the hopes of picking up a stroller on the cheap, but get this. It wasn't just that they didn't have baby carriages. They couldn't even hazard a guess about who might. They sent me to Chico, another carriage less baby store. and The Chico people redirected me to Antoshka, one block over.
3: <laughs> Antoshka had
0: baby carriages, but they were also ridiculously expensive. Even the cheapest model cost the equivalent of several hundred dollars, which is fine, I guess. Except that you have to keep in mind that the average Ukrainian earns something like eighty dollars a month. I don't know who was buying these things, but I sure wasn't going to lay out that money for a radio prop. This is not a baby carriage. It's a luggage cart I borrowed from one of the guys selling postcards and film. Not bad, huh? Well, at least good enough that when I first tried it out, I seriously had the urge to just say it was a baby carriage and call it a day. You know, some sort of vintage Soviet thing with bad ball bearings. Going vintage did, however, seem like a good idea. I headed over to Prevo's Market, which is sort of like a cross between a department store on the one hand and a recycling center on the other. There's caviar, shoes, accessories, food, perfume, toiletries, things like that. And then there's the guys selling things like rusty old tools laid out on moth-eaten blankets, or the old-school five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy disk drives. There was even somebody selling wheels. Just wheels, including a matching set of three that were obviously taken from a perambulator at some point. But nowhere could I find a complete, usable baby carriage. Until I came across Inna, or rather, she came across me. She was going around the market from vendor to vendor, selling tea, coffee, and cappuccino. It's a modest business, but the overhead is low. A couple of thermos bottles of hot water, some tea bags, and various instant coffee powders. She had all that loaded into a baby carriage, which served as a little mobile coffee bar. I guess it really shouldn't come as a shock that imported Western baby carriages are outrageously expensive in a country like Ukraine. What did surprise me was the utter lack of alternatives. Because in reality, the question isn't what the sound of the Potemkin steps are when a baby carriage rolls down them. We already know the answer to that one, and we knew it from the start. It's silence. The real question is why there are no alternatives, why it should be so difficult to find even a used baby carriage that your average Odessa couple could afford. I suppose that Inna might represent part of the explanation. There's no law saying that you can only use baby carriages for babies, and anything that bears weight and has four wheels has any number of applications. I personally would have loved to have given her baby carriage just one push, but for Inna, this object that was originally designed to cradle new life had another practical application is the source of a new livelihood.
7: And then if you notice the way I bow, I only get sound when the bow's going this way. So I always bow up. For some reason that works better for me. Some people only bow down. I'm Andy McCormick and uh, I'm in the band Dreamland Faces. And we've accompanied a whole bunch of silent films. It's not the only thing we do, but we love doing it. It's hard to keep it going, isn't
1: it? From KFAI, I'm Todd Milby, and this is Sound of Silence, an exploration of the silent film music scene in the Twin Cities.
5: The metaphor I use is that a silent film is like opera, almost. The images become larger if the sound fits it somehow. Bob Kogel, uh, I teach at Augsburg College, and I used to run the Oak Street Cinema. So, I, you know, I, I just love the alchemy between the between the performer, the audience, and the silent film. On the other hand, if you give me a silent film that has a soundtrack that's been added, it's almost always a deadening experience, almost always. I cannot watch a video of a silent film because the soundtracks are unbearable, but you, sh- you give me a silent film pr- projected with a live performer in front of it, and I'm there, I love it. I
1: saw lots of silent films at the Oak Street, always with live accompaniment by piano. Although the Oak has been shuttered for years now, it's still pretty easy to find silent films around town with local musicians performing original scores to match the images flickering on the screen. Only many of today's musicians aren't limiting themselves to the piano. They're writing original scores and performing them live with cellos, violins, drums, guitars, or, in the case of Dreamland Faces, that's the band you're listening to now, an accordion, saw, and piano. In the silent film era, Local pianists and organists accompanied films using music from cue sheets, provided by the movie company, or they improvised by matching the action on the screen with mood music provided from a book. If a scene involved trepidation, anger, joy, flirtation, or whatever, a player could quickly find the appropriate mood music to match the scene. But that's not what's happening here. What You're Hearing is an original score by Dreamland Faces for Neighbors, a 1920 short by one of the masters of the form.
7: We do a lot of Buster Keaton movies.
1: That's Andy McCormick from Dreamland Faces. You heard him at the beginning of the program.
7: I really get into writing the kind of like ominous, creepy things and chaotic, noisy things.
1: His artistic partner at Dreamland Faces is Karen Madiewicz. Today, he's playing the saw, and she's playing the accordion. When they write music for motion pictures, sometimes their approaches differ.
7: Karen is very good at writing atonal pieces, so she'll get to stick those in. And then do you guys talk about whether to go your way loud or her way subtle? Usually we're doing a movie where there's an opportunity to do each. If I have an idea and Karen has an idea, there's usually room for each idea.
1: (laughs) Their work hasn't gone unnoticed.
3: They have a strange and magical way of capturing every mood. Chris Heppela is a pianist. He plays with the poor nobodies. And every song has such a character, and the melodies are all very striking, and they always fit. When I have played with them, you know, their written music is one thing, and you learn it, but they barely even play it like that. You know, they play it different. They have a freedom in their music. Andy doesn't disagree. Though what
1: Chris Heppler calls freedom, Andy McCormick calls flow. I like
7: to have a lot of noise and sudden changes, and maybe you'll be playing something quiet for a while, and then all of a sudden you'll hear a super loud, you know, almost like scare you noise, and there'll be a lot of action, and it doesn't always flow with me.
1: (laughs) Over the years, Andy and Karen have written lots of scores for Silence. They've done other comedies by Buster Keaton. Harold Lloyd, too.
7: Uh, We also did... Lon Chaney's He Who Gets Slapped. Do you know that one? Chaney is a circus clown whose act consists of being repeatedly slapped. Yeah, it's a great movie. Lon Chaney, He Who Gets Slapped.
1: In America, silent films were especially popular in the earliest years of the last century. D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation was released in 1915. Charlie Chaplin hit his stride with The Gold Rush in 1925. But sound began to ease its way into cinema in 1927. That's the year that Al Jolson sang his way through The Jazz Singer. (laughs) ¶¶ By 1950, 23 years after the silent film era began to fade, Hollywood produced Sunset Boulevard, a picture about pictures.
8: You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent
7: pictures. Used to be big.
5: I am big. It's the pictures that got small.
1: Gloria Swanson plays Norma Desmond, an aging, forgotten star of the silent era, living alone in a mansion with a dead monkey and a butler.
7: Don't blame me, I'm
6: not an executive, just a writer.
2: You are, writing words, words,
6: more
5: words. Well, you've made a rope of words and strangled this business, (laughs) ha ha. But there's a microphone right there to catch the last gurgles. And Technicolor to photograph the red swollen tongue.
1: I'm inside a classroom at the old Polish National Catholic School in Northeast Minneapolis. Workers erected the school in 1916 which was pretty much the height of the silent film era. Of course, it's not a school or a classroom anymore. It's a studio inhabited by musicians. There's a piano in the corner, a couple of cello players in the center, chords twisting around everybody's feet, and in the back corner, behind a pair of beat-up cubicle walls, are two guitarists, one of whom looks a little bit like Frankenstein. He's got smudged white makeup on his face and he stares out over the cube wall Every now and again. That's why I've decided to hang out here by the friendly cellist checking a microphone. That's Krista Snyder.
2: I don't know if it's working, the mic. Our band name is The Poor Nobodies, and the soundtrack and film is titled Panacea.
1: Panacea is a short, wordless horror film shot by a pair of Rochester, Minnesota filmmakers. It debuted at the Twin Cities Horror Festival just before Halloween. Now it's a couple of months later. Winter has settled in like an uninvited guest. And the poor nobodies are here in this nearly 100-year-old building recording an evocative horror score for posterity.
3: Well, we started, I think, in 2008, maybe, and we definitely played for a long time before we really even thought about doing film scores. Uh, we made, made a record, maybe even two, before we did any film scores.
1: But once they got started doing film scores, they really got into it. The Poor Nobodies have written, performed, and recorded scores to Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger, Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin, and The Black Pirate, a swashbuckling adventure from 1926, starring Douglas Fairbanks, Jenna Weiss of the Poor Nobodies.
4: When when we make the movie, like, sometimes we'd go places that maybe we wouldn't if we were just making music for a a record, you know, doing really cheesy things or silly stuff. Or like super dark and very dramatic you know and then and then it's fun to take those songs into a bar you know and play something super metal you know and, and our other stuff is so not that and I don't know I think it keeps us on our toes it keeps us interested in making music together but it's a lot of work
1: <laughs> still it's an opportunity to experiment often by reimagining an original score even if it's not a silent again Krista Snyder and Chris Hepola,
2: And sometimes we throw it in people's faces. We do things out of the ordinary.
3: They're coming to get you, Barbara.
4: Stop it! You're ignorant!
3: We've, we've done that before. We've purposefully tried to, you know, crank it up a notch or make it a, a notch more sinister, especially with Night of the Living Dead.
6: There comes one of them now.
3: If you listen to the original score for that, I know that ours is a lot more like make your skin crawl the Sorry. whole time. And we tried to do that on purpose.
1: When making their version of Night of the Living Dead, the original score to the 1968 film didn't intimidate the poor nobodies. They considered it weak. That wasn't the case with Battleship Potemkin, which Eisenstein believed should be rescored every 20 years, so it would remain relevant to new audiences. The now little-known Edmund Meisel composed the original score, but in the DVD release of the film, editors chose excerpts from symphonies by Dmitri Shostakovich. The poor nobody say that confronting the great Shostakovich was more than a
3: little intimidating. The the Shostakovich version is definitely it is awesome. Better. <laughs> yeah, it's so a little, little bit better. Just a little bit better. <laughs>
5: yeah. It was definitely right.
3: inspiring to hear it.
2: Yeah, we have we we built some themes, like different people will compose different themes or different pieces of music that can go throughout the film. And then it's the challenge of fitting everything together. And if we want to get really into it, which we do oftentimes, we watch certain parts of the movie and try to play to those feels rather than just playing straight through, playing our themes or whatever. But we really try to work with the way the movie is.
1: Do you remember what you did for the, uh, the scene where the, the baby carriage goes down the steps oh. in, of Odessa? Uh, I don't
2: yes, know if I can play it right now. he'll try.
1: If you haven't seen the film, the famous Odessa step scene shows a crowd full of innocents being gunned down by soldiers. Before the carnage begins, we see women, children, and even a legless man waving at sailors as a ship returns to port. But as the Tsar's evil soldiers indiscriminately fire upon the crowd people slump to their deaths. Let's see. That's Richard Leppert. I'm in his office at the University of Minnesota. He's burrowing through a stack of papers in his file cabinet. I see thick folders marked Sunset Boulevard, Citizen Kane, and titles of other movies. Right now, Leppert is reaching for his notes on silent films.
8: Okay, so as you see here, this is uh, a thing called motion picture music. Did I say he's a professor? He's a professor. As, as the title has it, of high-class, dramatic, and descriptive motion picture music, all of the music is composed by one, one guy. This book of motion
1: picture music is what was known as a cue sheet. In the silent film era, lots of companies produced
8: these cue sheets. And you see the kinds of cues. So in this volume... You have a kind of music you'd want to use if it was going through the fog or if it was traffic or warriors in the desert or furious attack, which reads violent, maddened mob.
1: If an organist saw a maddened mob on the screen, he'd play the maddened mob music. If he saw a mysterious stranger, he'd play that. Again, Richard Leppert.
8: And if you take a look at the, you know, at the at the music here, it's stuff that is arranged so that any sort of semi-competent pianist can manage it.
1: You're fired! And that goes to your music, so!
2: Look, opportunity's knocking. Can either of you matzah play an organ? I don't know. I never tried. Me neither. Come on,
1: there's a first time for everything.
8: You know, the keys uh, that it's played in, these tend to be fairly straightforward. You're not going to run into very many pieces that have more than one or two sharps or flats in the key signature.
4: Boy, lucky me. I'll play it, because i got the longest hair. I knew you'd say that.
6: All right, get ready! A one, and a two, and a...
8: They're very careful to to assume that the, you know, that the uh, ability of the pianists is going to be middling rather than than high-toned.
2: Keep going, men, we've got a great beat going.
1: That lack of sophistication is probably why the Three Stooges poke fun at silent film organists in this 1960s-era cartoon.
5: Not bad for a guy that never had a lesson. In
1: 1920, the Boston Music Company published a slim volume intended to help musicians improve their skills accompanying silent films. The writers, Edith Lang and George West, offered this advice. Quote, Do not think you have to play frantically every moment of the time. This is called, most appropriately, crowding the picture. Bob Cogill of Augsburg College.
5: The worst ones are where simply tracks are taken from symphonies or taken from some sheet music that someone's performing and it's just layered onto the soundtrack. The, the next worst kind are the ones where every little slapstick moment or every little uh, event that you see on the film is underscored. Um, there's a term, Mickey Mousing, it's, it's, it, it, where the performers are really emphasizing every little thing. The best scores, when they're performed, add another dimension to the experience. And the film becomes a text that is being interpreted by two different sources at once, the audience and the the person who's playing the accompaniment.
4: So I'm Beth Dill, and I am a violinist in the Rats and People Motion Picture Orchestra, Minnesota, here in Minneapolis. We got started about a year ago. Our first mini gig was at a junior high school, yeah! And that was really fun. From there, we've been playing some local independent theaters here in Minneapolis.
1: On this night... Beth Dill and her colleagues in the Rats and People Motion Picture Orchestra are huddled stage right at the Heights Theater in Columbia Heights. In addition to showing first-run films, the Heights has a real thing for early talkies, film noir, musicals, and of course, silent movies. This recording was made just before Halloween during a showing of Nosferatu, a 1922 German horror film.
4: We've done four shows, this is our third film that we've put out. As well as, we've done a short of Buster Keaton's.
1: Rats and People got its start in Missouri.
4: We were the Rats and People, and we re- we've released an album. It was pretty big in St. Louis. <laughs> I have to say, I was like a local celebrity. Uh,
1: Luckily for film lovers, Rats and People got into silent movies.
4: We were asked to write a score for Buster Keaton's Go West, and the two composers in our group, Brian Seil and Matt Pace, wrote it having no idea if they would be successful, and it met quite a bit of acclaim. And that was back in 2004, I want to say. So they're the composers of the music. I played with them until 2009. Moved away and missed it so much that i I reformed here in Minneapolis when I
1: moved here that 's why the name of the band here is slightly different dill 's dubbed it the Rats and People Orchestra of Minnesota since moving to the Twin Cities. Beth Dill has convinced lots of her musician friends to practice for hours in the basement of her house in preparation for live performances.
6: Well, with? I don't know. Um, I, I got it yesterday. It was just the lead-in I had a hard time with, but... So. Just to so make sure we don't drag,
4: because at 387 there's an accelerando. Do you have it marked in at 387?
1: Yeah. <laughs> On this night, there's a couple of violinists, a percussionist, a guitarist, and an organist.
4: Yeah, I can play with you if you need me to. Well, I, I got
3: it yesterday, so...
4: Let's try it one more time, but yeah,
3: you've got it. And upstairs
1: are a couple of teenagers, walking around, eating pizza, and making the floors squeak.
8: One, two, three.
1: This rehearsal is focused on Nosferatu, so I asked Beth Dill, how the composers went about writing music for that film.
4: They scored to the instruments that we had and knew how to play. Because someone had a melodica, someone had a concertina, someone had an accordion. So those were the things that got written in. For Nosferatu, someone had a vibraphone and someone had a theremin. So those are the kinds of instruments that were written into the piece. So it's very organic in that it's, thought out what it's going to sound like until they sit and watch and write it over the course of a few weeks.
1: And people seem to be responding to it.
4: I don't know that these silent films were ever meant to be silent. There was always music played with them and I think it's an important part of the film and the silent film experience to hear not only music but that live music.
1: One thing I noticed about a previous Rats and People performance was the orchestra's occasional use of silence. It's what musicians call the grand pause and you can hear it in the score for *Nasratu*.
4: I find that they'll leave silent or in Nosferatu, there's definitely, there's a grand pause where uh, we want it to sink in that Count Orlok has come back on the ship and oh no, the terrors. It depends on the, the timbre of the film, whatever the grand pause gives, but it's definitely there for emotional effect.
1: But why bother to go see a silent film in a movie theater at all. The films are widely available for free online and on DVD too. Bob Cogill of
5: Augsburg College. I, I used to say that silent film for a lot of film goers is the undiscovered country. These days everything's available. so I, I, That's an outrageous claim. It's not undiscovered. But a silent film experienced with a really interesting accompaniment that makes it makes it come alive, because you're you're not now just seeing a, a filmed image, you're seeing a performance that will never be matched again. And I think audiences pick up on that. They pick up on the fact that they're not seeing just another replication of something they're going to discover these films are going to want to accompany them they're going to want to make the text live and so i'm i'm all for it and i'm all for you know the heights or the trial or whoever's doing this stuff to do it and, and and keep it alive
1: you've been listening to sound of silence an exploration of the silent film music scene in the Twin Cities. This program has featured the words of professors Richard Leppert and Bob Cogill, and the music of Dreamland Faces, the Rats and People Orchestra of Minnesota, and these folks, the poor nobodies.
6: Reach for the darkest spot inside your eye. Give it a try. (laughs) <laughs>
1: I'm Todd Milby thanks for listening That's our episode for today. I'm Todd Milby. I want to thank Jared Manisek for letting us uh, re-air his story about the Odessa Steps. Man, that story just stuck in my brain. I heard it first on the radio. It aired on a public radio program called The Savvy Traveler. I heard it on the radio. I loved it. I remembered it. Years would go by, years would go by. I'd, you know, be talking to somebody about the battleship Potemkin, and I'd go, man, you should have heard this radio story by this guy. And I'd, you know, tell him all about what Jared just told you in this episode. Um, so finally, I tracked Jared down, and I'm like, can we put this on the pod? And he said yes. So thank you, Jared Manasek, for letting us re-air your story. Also, a big shout-out to KFAI. It's a public radio station in Minneapolis, 90.3 FM, kfai.org. They're the folks that funded that that Sound of Silence radio documentary. All right, that's it. Thanks so much. See you next time.